Amen. Good morning. It's good to uh, get to be here with you. Appreciate uh, PJ's invitation. It's the first time I've ever been introduced as Yoda-like. Um, but uh, we'll see you. Thank you for that. Um, so I am from Scotland. Grew up in Aberdeen, Scotland. So I've got to kind of give you an explanation for the accent. Uh, I'm used to preaching in my own church, so I promise I'll try to be slower um, for you this morning so you can pick up most of what I'm saying. Um, uh, for you, so um, when you when you think of Scotland, what first comes to mind? Anybody been to Scotland? Anybody here been? You've been to Scotland, yeah? Oh, that's a couple of you have been to Scotland. Great. So so when you think of Scotland, what do you think of? Castles, bagpipes, Braveheart. Hold on, hold on, hold on. One at a time. Um, uh, whiskey, golf, haggis. Yep. Uh, kilts, men in kilts, um, mountains, uh, yeah, dragons, <laughs> no, it's a few, um, so when you think of Scotland, that's what tends to come to mind, this, this picture of this beautiful, idyllic, in many ways, culturally uh, romantic land, and it is, in many ways, all of that, it's got a, a, a rich heritage, a beautiful um, a landscape, and a colorful history. What most people do not think of when they think of Scotland is the fact that Scotland is, in fact, in many ways, an unreached land. And you'd be excused for not thinking that way because there are many uh, great Scottish theologians. So uh, who's going to pop quiz here? Think of a Scottish theologian or somebody uh, in church history that we can think of that Scotland has contributed to the world. John Knox. John Knox, yep. So founder of Presbyterianism in many ways. Any others? Come on, PJ. Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson. Some modern-day uh, Scottish preachers, Alistair Begg. Yeah. Um, uh, some of the modern missionary movement. Um, John Patton um, uh, went to the, uh, 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 from the New Hebrides. Think of um, uh, Mary Slessor, who went to West Africa. Uh, Alexander Mackay went to Uganda. David Livingston, who took the gospel into the interior of Africa. So Scotland itself is a rich Christian heritage. And so most people would be forgiven for assuming that Scotland is a Christian nation. Since 1950, since the Second World War, church attendance in Scotland has halved every decade. There's been a, a cataclysmic decline of Christianity in Scotland. Until today, there is less than 3% of Scotland's people would be born-again evangelical Christian, less than 3%. So 97% of Scotland's people would today not have any saving knowledge of Jesus Christ at all. I grew up in a town uh, where I didn't, I grew up in a high school of a thousand students, never met a Christian in my life. Nobody in my immediate family were Christian um, until I was 16. My mother started going to a small little Baptist church of about 15 people, and uh, she heard the gospel and I went with her, and I heard the gospel, and by the Lord's grace, um, was saved and converted in that small little Baptist church there in, in the east coast of Scotland. But the, the places of Scotland you are least likely to find a church or a Christian today are in the poorest parts of Scotland. See, where Christianity is reduced, it is reduced to this very middle-class bubble. Kind of typically where you find a church, it tends to be around a university, or where you find a church tends to be in the, the, the wealthier parts of the cities. In the poorer parts of our cities, 
have been completely cut off from any gospel witness at all. These are known as the schemes of Scotland. So in, in the U.S., you may know them as, as projects, as the hood, as uh, Section 8 housing, social housing. In Scotland, we'd call them housing schemes, the schemes of Scotland. Scotland has the highest heroin addiction rate in the world. It's got one of the highest cocaine use rates in the world. It is a land, in many ways, blighted by uh, addiction, alcoholism, drug addiction, um, in many of the schemes of Scotland, male life expectancy is in the 40s, and that's largely due to lifestyle choices, alcohol and drug abuse and suicide. And so there are communities in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Dundee and Aberdeen and Inverness today, there are communities in those cities where there are young boys being born today and young girls being born today who will live their entire life having never met a living Christian. It's the reality of many of these communities in Scotland today. So six years ago, myself and a friend of mine, Mess McConnell, started a church planting ministry called 20 Schemes. Our goal, our vision is to plant 20 gospel preaching churches in the schemes of Scotland. And our hope is that out of that group of 20, we'll see many new churches planted across the schemes of Scotland. And that by that, by that, by planting in the most unlikely of places, in the hardest places, that Scotland itself will wake up to the power of the gospel. In the last six years, we've planted six churches um, in, across Scotland, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, Inverness, Glasgow, and Dundee. I'd love for you to find out more about our ministry, 20schemes.com, 20schemes.com. You can see some of the stories of testimonies of, of new believers who have seen their life transformed from addiction and uh, abuse and in many ways uh, darkness to the light of the gospel. And now we're training and raising up these indigenous converts to lead church plants across that land. Love for you to come and join us, uh, maybe uh, on a mission trip. To, we have internship programs in, in the summer and also semester-length internship programs for college-age students. Uh, we have a two-year ministry placement uh, for uh, ministry apprentices for men and women of any age to come and join us um, in Scotland, join one of our church planting teams. I'd be happy to share with you more about that work as well. And so, if you would, permit me just to pray before we go into the Word, uh, just for Scotland and for the Ministry of 20 Schemes, and then we'll open the Lord's Word together. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we share these stories about Scotland, Lord, we do so not because in any way we are losing confidence in you. We do so, Father, because there's much work to be done. Lord, the, the situation in Scotland is bleak, not because your word is without power. The situation is bleak because your, your church lost confidence in the gospel. And so the church died. I pray that that be never the case here, in this city and in this land. Lord, we ask, Father, that there'd be a resurgence again in Scotland. Where once the, the word of God was preached faithfully week after week. Where once men and women were sent to far off lands to proclaim your truth to the most unlikely of places. Where once, where once churches thrived and sung and wrote hymns to be sung. And yet now we go into church buildings that have been converted into nightclubs and apartments and mosques and casinos. 
What a legacy. A legacy of a church that turned away from you. Father, our hope and our confidence for Scotland is the same as it is here. That through the preaching of your word, your people will be saved. And so raise up men and women to go to the schemes of Scotland, to go to the unreached places of Scotland, to go with a holy confidence that you will save your people. But Father, no amount of drug addiction, poverty, abuse, depression, anxiety, no amount of of slavery to sin is enough. It's enough to to overpower the, the power of the gospel. So raise up your holy messengers to present your holy message, Lord, even if it be in this room. That Jesus be worshipped where he is not worshipped, for he is worthy of praise. It's in his name we pray. Speak to us now, we ask, for Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn to the Gospel of Luke, I'm going to read this morning from Luke chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 22. I'm going to read all the way through 27. It says, Jesus speaking to his disciples. Peter has, has just made this uh, monumental confession of who, Jesus, who he believes and claims Jesus to be. And then Jesus responds to that confession with this in verse 22. Luke chapter 9. Verse 22, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, be raised up on the third day. And then he said to them all, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. And that of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Amen. As we go into a, a new year and start a, a new year together, so you start a new year as a church, it's so good to, to be reminded of what it is that God is calling us to. What is all of this about? Why do we do this? Why do we gather week after week? Why do we call each other to, to lives of faithfulness and obedience? Why do we seek to press on in obedience to the Word of God? What is all this for? What is it all about? Let me tell you about a man, a, a pastor named Richard Wurmbrand, who was an evangelical minister in, in Romania in the 1940s. Richard Wurmbrand was widely recognized as Romania's, one of, his, one of Romania's greatest Christian leaders. He was an author, an educator. He lived during the Second World War and he saw the rise of communism 
in Romania. In 1945, communists seized Romania, and in doing so, they attempted to take control of many churches. And Pastor Wormbrand began a vigorous underground ministry in Romania. And he ministered to oppressed Christians, as well as to Russian soldiers who are occupying his land. He himself was seized and arrested in 1948, along with his wife, Sabina. And they were imprisoned and sentenced to slave labor for three years, building the Danube Canal. Pastor Wombrand spent three years in solitary confinement. He saw no one for three years other than his communist torturers until he was ultimately transferred to a group cell where the torture continued for five more years. He wrote this about solitary confinement. Did I believe in God? Now the test had come. I was alone. There was no salary to earn, no golden opinions to consider. God offered me only suffering. Would I continue to love him? In those years, in that group cell, suffering daily beatings from his torturers. He wrote about those years this way. He said, It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing so would receive a severe beating. So a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us, everyone was happy. When Richard Wormbrand was released, he immediately resumed his work with the underground church. A couple of years later, he was rearrested and sentenced to 25 years in prison. He wrote this, Not all of us are called to die a martyr's death, but all of us are called to have the same spirit of self-sacrifice and love to the very end of these martyrs' had. So hammer away, you hostile bands. Your hammers will break, but God's anvil stands. Amen. What is it to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does discipleship look like for us? Are there two kinds of disciples? Does God set out two standards for us? That there are there is those super spiritual, radical, fearless men like Wormbrand, and he expects of them a kind of Christianity that puts everything down for the sake of following Christ. And there's the rest of us who just go on with our lives and just add Jesus to our ordinary everyday lives. Does God treat discipleship that way? Or does God call us all to the same standard? to the same call to faith and discipleship. We are living in a day and age when I fear that many people are being sold a lie about what it means to be a Christian. A lie that says it is easy. A lie that says you can come to Jesus just as you are and remain as you are. A lie that says just believe in Jesus and everything else in your life will be okay. A lie that treats Jesus 
as nothing more than a genie in a bottle, if you pray really hard, then all your wishes will come true. Is that what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Is that what Jesus asks of us? Well, let's go to his words and ask him the question. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Verse 23, chapter 9, Luke's gospel, Jesus says, Then he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The first, the first step of being a follower of Jesus, the first description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is this. It's self-denial. How do you know that you are a disciple of Christ, that you are denying yourself? It's self-denial. The first clue that we have to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that a disciple must first deny himself. Jesus is clear here. There are no two standards. He says this. If anyone, if anyone wants to follow of me, includes you, includes me, then he must deny himself. No one is off the hook. So what does it mean? What does self-denial look like in a selfie world? I mean, we live in a time when we celebrate self more than any other time. What's it mean in our day, in our age, to deny our self? It is completely countercultural. You see, you will never see Jesus until you get over yourself. Amen. You cannot be a full, you cannot be full of yourself and full of Jesus. It is impossible. Many people think that they are on the path of following Jesus. But in reality, they're only following themselves and their own invention of who they think Jesus should be. You see, they follow Jesus for as long as Jesus does for them what they want from Jesus. For as long as Jesus makes them feel better about themselves. As long as Jesus helps them to get just what they want. What must they do to be saved? Jesus says, repent and believe. So he tells us, repent and believe. That's what it means to be, a, to be a follower of Jesus. You must repent and believe. But the truth is, many people, perhaps they claim to believe and then they have little difficulty in believing. But Jesus clearly says that we are to repent first. That we're to turn away. We're to deny ourselves. We're to abandon ourselves. And then believe and trust and, and count on Christ. As our Redeemer and our Savior. You see, there are many people all around us who have no trouble believing. Even the demons believe. There are many who will say and they claim that they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They believe that He died on the cross. They even say they believe that He rose from the grave on the third day. That they will not repent. They will not turn around. They will not get over themselves, desert the kingdom of the world, abandon the ways of, their, of the world, and turn to Jesus. 
To deny ourselves means we look at our old self and our old life. We look at our unredeemed, cursed, spiritually dead self and we say, I'm done with you. You cannot come where I'm going. I'm going to Jesus. You see, our, our old self, when we were at the center of our lives, that old self loves to be praised. Our old self loves to be celebrated. Her old self loves to be made much of. Her old self loves glory and comfort and ease. Her old self will chase after anything in the pursuit of comfort and ease and self-glory. Her old self says, it's all about me. Look at me. Make much of me. Make me great. Make my life easy and comfortable. But those who come to Jesus and see him for who he, who he is, we say it's all about Jesus. Look at Jesus. Make much of Jesus. Proclaim the greatness of Jesus. Even if it means making my life hard and uncomfortable for the sake of declaring the worth of Jesus. Do you see how that kind of life is utterly impossible if you still put yourself at the center of who you are? It's one or the other. It's one or the other. Either you follow Jesus or you follow yourself. Either you love Jesus or you love yourself. Either you put Jesus at the center of your life or you put yourself at the center of your life. It is impossible to follow Jesus until you deny yourself. Because we cannot do what Jesus demands of us if we are still in love with our own glory and our own comfort and our own self. So come as you are. Yes. But we don't stay as we are. We don't stay as we are. We, we come to be transformed into the glory of the living God Himself. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. So how do you think Pastor Wormbrandt could withstand the beatings of his persecutors day after day, the years of solitary confinement, day after day after relentless day? Not because he was some kind of super-Christian, because he's had some kind of extraordinary superpower, but because he loved Jesus more than he loved himself. That's how. Because he loved the glory of Christ more than he loved his own glory. That's how. Because he was just like you and I. No different. A mere man. Yet he denied himself. He gave up his craving and his desire for comfort and ease and a painless existence because he knew and loved and treasured Jesus more. This is how we find life and joy, even in the midst of suffering. I don't know what suffering you're going through right now, but I know all of us face trials and suffering and at times discomfort and confusion. The pathway to joy in the midst of suffering is rarely one of comfort and ease. 
The pathway to joy is the pursuit of Jesus, to treasure Jesus, to find him as more valuable than your comfort. It enables us to overcome whatever the world throws at us. So the first, the first step he calls us to is to deny ourselves, and the second step he then challenges us with is to pick up our cross. First, and then the second part of verse 23, he says, let him deny himself, but then he says, take up his cross daily and follow me. So you deny yourself, and as, as self-deniers, we become cross-takers. So what does this look like? Again, Jesus is talking to his disciples here. He's talking to, to Peter, who's just himself confessed Jesus Christ as God. He says, I believe. And Jesus says to Peter, you have no idea what it means to believe. What it means to be a follower of me. So let me tell you. You think you believe, and, and this is good, but let me tell you what this means. To be a follower of me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Jesus himself has just declared his own arrest, his death, and his resurrection. He confronts Peter. Peter says that there's no way will happen to him. And so Jesus says to, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Jesus knows that what these men need to know more than anything right now is that this will not be easy. He knows that what he is calling to, calling these men to, is completely unlike anything that they could imagine. This, for these men, will be hard. It will be costly. It will be ultimately deadly for all of them. Jesus doesn't just look at his disciples in the eyes and says, every head bowed and every eye closed, and now raise your hand if you want to go to heaven. And he looks at them and he says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow me. Christian discipleship is the act of daily cross-taking. So it is to be a disciple of Jesus. And these men would have understood exactly what Jesus meant by that term. This would have been a familiar term with them. Take up your cross. It was a terrifying term. It was the most shameful, horrific way to die. The most painful way to die imaginable. The most humiliating way to die imaginable. It was the picture of a curse. The most horrific form of Roman execution. The most vilest form for the most vilest of criminal. And yet this is what Jesus calls them to. Jesus is calling them to the most shameful and painful existence, which is lifting, taking up a cross. What is he telling them? He says, if you want to follow me, it means you are running head first against every other power and ruler on earth. Amen. And if you want to follow me, it means you will suffer opposition and shame and persecution and even death for my sake. And that is the price. That is the price that the world will demand of you. If you, if you presume to make me your king, that's the price, that's the cost that you will pay to be my follower. He lays it all on the line for them. 
He's this. That's what it means to be my follower. Jesus is not a beggar standing at the door as if, as if he's just there knocking and wishing that we would follow him. Jesus is a king commanding our faithful obedience to him. Amen. He's not calling us to a life of ease and a sense of comfort. He's not coming to us and saying, yeah, just add me to your life so I can make your life more comfortable and so I can add some peace and joy to your life. No, he's not demanding that of us. He's coming to us and he's demanding of us, if you believe that I am the Son of God, the living Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that I am Jesus Christ, the Messiah, if you believe this to be true, then lay down your life for me and follow me. The idea that a sense of purpose and comfort and pleasure in this life is the extent of what we have to live for is a lie. It's the lie of Satan. So many people are buying it. That the, the most we can hope for from Jesus is, is, is a sense of, of purpose. The most we can hope for from Jesus is a, a sense of comfort. The most we can hope for from Jesus is, is health and prosperity and, and wealth and ease and comfort. It's the lie of Satan. It's the lie he always offers us. Amen. When Jesus was being taken into the wilderness and was tempted by Satan, what is it that, that Satan was tempting him with? What is it that Satan tempted him with? He's tempted him with power and with comfort and with popularity and with fame and with a life without the cross. A life without suffering. And Jesus being tempted in the wilderness with all these things, all the temptations that, that, that come against us in a daily assault against us every day. And Jesus faced temptation of a life without the cross. For the sake of us, he walked away from it. And he pursued the cross. That same lie is being thrown at us and our children every day of every week from our colleges and our TV channels and our social media feeds and the news stations and our friends and our colleagues and our Christian radio stations. This is the lie that they scream at us. It's all about you. And it's all for you. And you can be great. And you can be really something. You can have ease. You can be made, made much of. Oh, come on, you deserve it. You've earned it. You can be celebrated. It's a lie, and we so quickly get sucked into it. It feeds that part of our old self. And every time we see it, the part of our old self comes alive again. It's a lie. It's a lie that led to Adam and Eve to their graves. And it's a lie that caused Judas to die a miserable death alone, and it's a lie that will lead us to our deaths as well. But Jesus comes to us and he says, no, do not buy that lie. Instead, follow me. Deny yourself. If you do, then know what it means. It means giving up your comfort and your ease and your popularity, giving up your fortune. This isn't going to be easy. He doesn't promise that it's going to be easy. Satan and the entire world is opposed to us in this. It will mean taking up our cross daily. For some, it will be 
merely being mocked and ridiculed, shamed, humiliated, passed over for a promotion, attacked in the workplace. For others, it will mean dying a martyr's death. But we are all demanded to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. John Calvin says, All things around us are in opposition to God's promises, but what is to be done? We must pass by ourselves so that nothing hinders our believing that God is true. See, we've got to get over ourselves so that we keep believing in Jesus. Jesus modeled it himself. For he emptied himself and came down from heaven. He suffered scorn and ridicule. He would be beaten unjustly, accused unfairly, condemned unequivocally to die a criminal's death. He denied himself and he took up his cross. And he calls on us to do likewise. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and during the Second World War, said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So what does this mean for us? When Jesus said that anyone who follows me must deny himself and take up his cross, he's saying that this is what he expects of us, of you, of me. He expects that we who belong to him are men and women who are willing to be opposed, to be shamed, to suffer and to die. For him, taking up our cross means that Jesus has become more precious to us than our own self-approval, honor, comfort, and life. See, the only way that we can possibly do this, the only way we can possibly take up our cross is if we deny ourselves. You'll never take up your cross if you still love yourself more than Jesus. But if we love Jesus as our greatest treasure, then in every pain and suffering, in the diagnosis of of cancer or the loss of a loved one, when it all seems like everything is falling apart in our lives, we'll still be able to say, yet he is worthy. He is worthy even of this, even of this. Martin Luther, when he first came to Christ, he said that he realized this. This grace had cost him his very life and must continue to cost him the same price day by day. So what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It means to deny ourselves. It means to take up our cross. But then Jesus goes and tells us more what it means to be a follower of him. Verse 24, for whoever wants to save his life and will lose it, but whoever loses life because of me will save it. You see, Jesus knows when he's looking into the hearts of his disciples right now that what he's saying to them sounds impossible. That what he's saying to, to Peter and James and John and Andrew and all the disciples that are listening to him, this is this is pretty deflating. This is hardly a, a, a great kind of pep talk on the way to Jerusalem. And so he, is, he knows that, that, that these, these men, that this is hard, it's relentless, that we are weak and we lack courage. So Jesus gives us two compelling arguments 
as to why what he's calling us to is for our good. A self-denying, cross-taking life is, in fact, the only way to truly find life. And the most glorious of lives at that. So why would we do this? Why would we? Men and women here in Bellflower, California, why would we, why would we live this kind of life? Self-denying, cross-taking. Why? Why would we willingly suffer shame and a humiliation and opposition? What would motivate us to give up our ease and comfort? Why would I go into to, to towns and cities and college campuses calling on, on people to give up their comfort and their ease to move to the schemes of Scotland, to a people who do not want to hear from them and who probably hate them and probably despise them and make their life hostile in the midst of Why? Why give up everything to do that? Verse 24. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. The self-denying, cross-taking life is the only way to save our lives. Everything around us is dying. We are dying. Everything around us is corrupt. We are corrupt. There is sin and darkness and sickness and disease and hate and death. This World is dying. We are dying. There's no getting away from that fact. You can be comfortable, but you're still dying. You can have ease in this life, but you are still dying. You can be wealthy, but you are still dying. You can be celebrated and famous, but you are still dying. There is no getting away from it. The wages of sin is death. We are condemned under a curse. And the curse is death. Even terminally sick people can have a good day. But that doesn't change the fact that their condition is terminal. Our condition is terminal. Because of our sin and rebellion against a good and a great God, we will suffer His unrelenting wrath and punishment for all eternity. This is our condition. The world lies. The truth is this. We are dying. Every picture of comfort or ease, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. We are dying. We are under the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death. And so Jesus, he gives us a wake-up call. He says, you think that your comfort and your ease and your popularity and your wealth is good? It might feel good right now. But there will come a day when it will all be gone. And it will be gone forever. And what will you be left with then? He's telling us. You can have it all now, but you will lose it forever. Or you can give it all up now, and you will gain everything forever. You can have comfort, and you can have ease, and you can have glory, and you can have wealth, and you can have popularity, and fame, and prestige. You can forever have that. That's what he's offering us. 
Eternity with comfort and ease and joy and peace. Eternity celebrating glory and fame. Eternity being made much of before the living God. That's what we gain. So he says, you can have it all now if you want. Go for it now. But you trade it in for eternity. This is what it means to daily take up your cross. Because, friends, this is a daily battle. We need to be reminded of this truth every day. This life is not all there is. The, the, the treasures that we have in this life, yes, some of us, we enjoy good treasures, homes and family and, and well-being and comfort and ease, and some of them, by God's grace to us, we receive. But these are, these are trinkets, these are mirages, these are, are just shadows of what is to come. This isn't the prize. There's a prize that comes to us. We live now for a greater life yet to come. So we live to make much of Jesus now so that on the day of his appearing, he will make much of us before our heavenly Father. And we need to, we need to be reminded of that truth every day. Every day when, when the world's assault comes against us, and we become weary. We buckle under the pressure and the weight of the lies of Satan and the discomfort of this life. Let us remember. Let us remember these words of Jesus. For what is the profit of man? What is the benefit of someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses it and forfeits it for Himself, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and that of the Father and of the holy angels. So come after Jesus. You see, if we come to Jesus, the curse of death is lifted. If we come after Jesus, the curse of death is lifted. Look, don't. Make sure you, you, you are hearing what he is hearing and not hearing what he isn't saying. He is not saying, if you deny yourself and if you take up your cross, then you will be saved. He is saying, because you are saved, this is what it means to be saved. You are enabled to, empowered to, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me every day. Amen. A life of obedience does not save you. It's the obedience of Jesus that saves us. But it is life with Jesus that is a life of obedience. It's what he calls us to. It's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We do it because we find life in Jesus. Where once we were dead, we are now alive. There's nothing to be gained in this world but Christ. For everything else has no value. To avoid this life of self-denial and daily taking up our cross, it's a deadly gamble. Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, he tells us that if you value and treasure worldly pleasures and comforts above him, then you will lose everything. See, the world cannot save you, but Jesus can. You can be the wealthiest man on earth, and yet you will remain utterly bankrupt before holy God. 
You enter this world with nothing. You exit with nothing. All we are and all we have is because of him. You can be the poorest man on earth and yet you can own it all. And you will be a co-heir with Christ. There will come a day when you and I will die. And on that day, we will stand before our Creator. And there is no amount of wealth and no amount of human accolades and no amount of worldly trinkets, no degrees, no trophies, no investment funds, no beachfront properties, no career title that will shield you from the wrath of God who calls on us to deny ourselves so that we might declare the worth of Jesus to the world. Amen. You will lose your soul forever. If you forfeit it now, there's no going back. That's what's at stake. So Jesus, Peter confesses that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And Jesus calls upon us to make that same confession. But this is what he tells us. If you're truly my disciple, then daily deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. And finally, he, he gives us another motivation. Verse 27, truly, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What's he mean by that? There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the reason why a self-denying, cross-taking life is in fact the best of lives. Because on that last day in our own lives, we will not taste death. We won't even experience it. All we'll experience is being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That we'll trade in this life for the life we were created to live. In unity with our, our Savior forever. Jesus says to us, you want to be my disciple? You want to gain eternal life? And treasure me above all else. Treasure me above the promises of riches and comfort and the approval of men. Treasure me above anything that this sick and dying and God-denying world has to offer you. Don't be ashamed of me when the opposition comes. Don't be ashamed of me when the ridicule comes. Don't be ashamed of me when it comes to sacrificing your time. Don't be ashamed of me when it comes to giving of your money. Don't be ashamed of me when it comes to your friendships, your reputation, your holiness. Don't be ashamed of me. But Jesus says, this is his promise to us. For I will not be ashamed to stand before our Father and plead your case. Amen. George Whitfield, the great English preacher, wrote in the 1700s, in our days to be a true Christian is to be a scandal. How true that is for us today. In our days to be a true Christian is to be a scandal. It is utterly scandalous to your friends and to your neighbors what we claim to believe. It is utterly scandalous to declare Jesus Christ is God. 
It is utterly scandalous to claim that there is no other way to be saved but by him. It is utterly scandalous to call out all other religions as heretical and false gods. It's utterly scandalous to pursue holiness in this world today. To call sin, sin. To to believe in the reality of hell. To deny ourselves. To reject the ways of the world. To believe in the sanctity of life and marriage. To believe there is a creator who created us as men and as women with distinct roles. To speak as the Bible, as the authority in our lives. This is utterly scandalous to our world. It flies in the face of all that the world believes in. It provokes the anger and scorn of people all around us. But friends, this is nothing new. It has always been this way. We are not playing a game. We are fighting a war. We are men and women under siege. We are living our lives now in order to declare that Jesus Christ is King. So to the person who refuses to take up his cross, Jesus says, when I come on that day, I will be ashamed of you. That's what's at stake. What if we get this wrong? What if we choose to love ourselves more than Jesus? Jesus says glory is at stake. Not yours, but his. This is about glory. This is about who will be glorified in your life. Who will be declared to be the most valuable, your greatest treasure. Will you take up your cross of shame and suffering because God is worthy of glory? Or will you refuse to do so? Because you seek to trade in eternal, everlasting glory for temporary treasures. But what unimaginable glory awaits those of us who follow Jesus. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him I will be ashamed when he comes in his glory. But of him... Of him who does not deny me, Jesus says, that he, he will not be ashamed of us. He is our mediator. He stands before us. We have but a glimpse of that glory today. See, yes, there are, there are evidences of comfort and ease in this life. Yes, there are, are evidence of of love and peace in this world. We look up at the stars and the sky and the ocean and and we see the beauty of God's handiwork all around us. We see in the acts of love and kindness and gentleness and goodness that we experience even in our church. We see evidence of glory in this life. Why does God grant us to see glimpses of glory? Not so that we might treasure these worldly trinkets. But because of this, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unfailed faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Every evidence of, of ease and peace and joy that God grants you in this life, it is not that you might fall in love with this world, it's so that you might fall in love with him all the more. It is a taste. It's a taste. Every good thing you experience in your life today, it is a taste 
a mere fleeting glimpse of glory. We see dimly now, but on that day, when Christ shall return, the fog will clear, and we will see clearly, brilliantly, in the full, resplendent majesty of the glory of our God. And on that day, there will be no question. His glory is above every earthly treasure. Soon after his release from captivity, Pastor Wormbrandt and his wife founded Voice of the Martyrs as a way to minister to Christians who are daily taking up their cross and suffering persecution all over the world. And they would travel throughout the world to provide relief to families of imprisoned Christians and Islamic nations, communist nations, and other countries where Christians are persecuted because of their faith. And he said, Wembrandt wrote this, In spiritual matters, the only real glory is in the renunciation of glorifying self. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Worms, fire, or the sea might consume my body, but my spirit will live in a world with no more wanderings and trials. I do not have to pass through many painful incarnations, for I will not even taste death. Rather, beyond death, I will taste paradise. This is our promise. This is our hope. Let me close with these words from Psalm 24. When Jesus calls us to live self-denying, cross-taking lives in this year and in every year, Psalm 24 says this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory May come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Lord, help us in our daily battle to lift up our heads and to see the King of glory. So, Lord, I know there are bound to be men and women in in this room this morning who are struggling with suffering and heartache, with pain, 
and loss, who are growing weary of the daily battle. Oh, Father God, I pray that by your Spirit you would encourage them to press on, to lift up their heads and see this King of glory. And there are many other in this room, many others of us who are bombarded with the lies of Satan, who trade the glory of Jesus for our own glory as we lead in, as we follow temptation into sin. Lord, help us not to believe the lies of sin. Help us rather hold fast to the truth of your gospel. I pray that for our children. I pray that for this city. I pray that over this church, we would lift up our heads and see the King of glory, the Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.